Hello and welcome to the Media and Marketing Podcast. My name is John Reynolds. Uh, later we'll talk to Ed Couchman, the General Manager of Snap, the uh, parent company of Snapchat, finding out what uh, Snapchat's up to now and in the future. Uh, before all that, we were at the magazine PPA Festival this week. We've got three on-the-road short interviews. One's with Jason Gonzalez, who tells us why the Face magazine is coming back. We've got James Brown, who uh, is talking about why he's coming back into magazines. And we've also got Jason Cowley, the editor-in-chief of The New Statesman, who tells us why political magazines are very fashionable at the moment and popular, but doesn't want to ask uh, answer questions about Roger Scruton, the government advisor who was sacked following an, adv- uh, an interview with The New Statesman. So first up, we have Jason Gonzalez. Okay, so uh, thanks for joining me, Jason. So the face launched first time in 1980. 1980. That's closed right. in 20... 2004. 2004, and now you're bringing it back. So why are you bringing it back? Uh, we just think there's a real space for proper journalism and real quality content in the area of style and something that connects all of that amazing creative stuff in fashion and music and art but with a social and political context and I think there's a young audience who really wants it. Okay, so it's going to be a a mixture of uh, Instagram account, website and a quarterly magazine. Exactly, yes. And video and YouTube and yeah, I think we're just really open to kind of exploring whatever's the best way to tell stories and yeah, so a combination of digital and and the print. Okay, and I I guess one concern is I think there's probably a lot of goodwill uh, to the relaunch, but you don't want to be, I guess, too nostalgic then, do you? No, not at all. In fact, you know, that's why we, we before we actually launched, we got a lot of that, you know, dipping back into the archive so that young readers could actually look at it and see where we came from, but actually very, very focused about taking it forward, you know, being true to some of the, the values that probably resonate with what it was in its previous generation, but very very much taking it forward you know and and trying to address a younger audience so you know anyone we get who remembers it fondly that's a bonus but really we're about trying to find you know talk to a new generation and when you talked about the editorial team you you kind of floated this idea of more of a a community so you're not going to have a a kind of standard sort of paid uh, traditional editorial team is that right Uh, i think it's it's both you know i think what we've got at its heart are brilliant journalists who are absolutely expert at telling stories in Um, in the printed words, in audio and and in video, but around them we've got a broader kind of family of people who are engaged in all sorts of different creative endeavours and they are giving us amazing access to what's happening at the kind of cutting edge of culture and I think that dialogue between, you know, staff journalists and editorial people and sort of interesting people are out there in the world that's what's really exciting for us okay last couple of questions is there any danger that if hopefully it doesn't but if it goes um if it dies um you don't get much resonance in the market that you kind of i guess to a lot of people it's a magazine that perhaps is, is sacred are you kind of rude that you could tarnish that their memories in any way no, I think we we just absolutely believe there's an audience out there that wants it. We've got an incredible reaction from advertisers, and we think there's commercial models that don't rely on advertisers at all. So we we we, we think this is a really exciting time uh, to be doing this, and I think we've more than just having a point of view about what it is from a creative and editorial point of view. I think we've got a really innovative perspective on what what the business model is. Okay, and, and finally, who who is uh, I mean, we've touched upon uh, who are the main competitors? And I guess that's quite broad broad brushes uh, I think 
I don't really see us as having competitors. I think we're part of a community of interesting storytellers that range from amazing independent titles like Galdem on one side to the New York Times on the other. And that might sound like a lofty aspiration to put yourself in the same, you know, uh, bracket as the New York Times and New Yorker. But that's what we want to do, and that's the that's the the context we give ourselves, and that that makes for really exciting times making okay. it. And finally, Wednesday first printed issue. When's it out then? September. So, and where can, where can people buy that then? Uh, any, um, well, they're going to be in really, it'll be in selected news agents and the right kinds of places. And also we're going to be selling um, selling issues online that will be delivered to you the next day. And you'll have the same masthead, will it? Or? Uh, to, to, yeah, we're working on that at the moment. So okay. who knows? Right. Okay, thanks very much, Jason. That's great. Uh, so, Jay- Jason, thanks very much for joining me. So you're speaking on a panel this afternoon about how and why current affairs titles are suddenly booming in the current climate. So why are they booming? Well, it's it's a period of extraordinary politics. I, I took over the New Statesman at the end of 2008, which coincided with the deepening of the global financial crisis. It was followed by the Great Recession, and it's been non-stop ever since. We've had the Scottish referendum... We've had the shock victory for David Cameron in the 2015 general election. We've had the Corbyn surge on the left. We had the European referendum and the vote for Brexit. And now we're grappling with the consequences of that vote for Brexit. So it's, it's been a period of, of extraordinary politics. And I think people are hungry for intelligent commentary and publications that are attempting to explain and analyse what's going on. OK, I mean, there is a school of thought, isn't there, that some people might feel as though they're over-informed about Brexit. Do you think I mean, there is a saturation of coverage. What, what's the point of difference then for the, the new statesman against national newspapers and maybe the uh, Today Show? Well, we just don't, we don't just write about Brexit. We're, we, we were founded as a weekly review of politics and literature in 1913, and when I took over, that was my mission, was to, was to return to its... Um, original aims. So it's not just a magazine of news and current affairs, it's a magazine of politics, cultural essays, literary reviews. And we also have a very big and ever-growing website. So we're a print and digital hybrid. So there's very much a place for us. We have a political niche, you know, we lean left, although we're not programmatically left. And we're, we have a liberal sensibility. And most, if you think about it, most of the British media is on the right. Yes, that's true. And what, generally, what are your thoughts about the, the national newspapers and how they're covered? How they're covering politics at the moment? Is there, is there much to be desired for? Or are they doing a good job? Well, some of them. I mean, I came from a newspaper background. I worked on the Times and I worked on the on the Observer, the Sunday newspaper. And I think too many newspapers are led by their political positions, so their ideological mm-hmm. positions. And in some ways, that dictates what what they permit inside their inside their publications. I, I prefer um, to be much more unpredictable in the way I edit the New Statesman. You know, we have a we have a left-leaning sensibility. It doesn't mean we're not open to voices from the right, from the centre, and more sceptical voices. And I think some of our newspapers, uh, they cheerlead for fixed positions, and I don't really like that. What are examples of right-wing, right-wing writers who write for the New Statesman? Simon Heffer, for example, he's, he's one of our um, commentators, um, writes very well on the Conservative Party. We have the political philosopher John Gray, who you wouldn't locate on right or left, but he's, a, he's an arch-sceptic, and he gives our, our, cold, our political, more philosophical pieces great depth. Okay, and you, so New Statesman went behind a, a metered paywall last year. Can you just explain, so subscribers get... Uh, access to the uh, number of stores on the website, the podcast, I presume, and events, is it? Yeah, we've, we've really grown as a small 
a media company. I mean, when I got there, we were a print title with a very small website. We're now a very, very big website. We've maintained our print title, which is growing. We have podcasts, newsletters. Um, there's a lot going on. And if you subscribe to both the print and digital, you get the lot. Right. So it's a metered payroll. Maybe it's too porous for my taste at the moment. I mean, there's, there's too many ways around it, so we're, we're going to hold What do you mean by that? Too many ways around well, it? I think people can access it via incognito windows and things like that, and I, I want to close that. Right. Um, but first of all, when I became editor, we had to build an audience. Yeah. So we had a very, very small web audience. Now I think we're getting something like 3 million uniques a month. So that's, okay. that's a decent audience, and you can now look to monetize that. Right, okay. And then finally, what's been the big selling issue you've had this year, then, the most popular issue? Well, some of those issues that have covered directly the Brexit chaos, but our best-selling issue of the year is our spring special, our Easter double. Right. Right, Jason, that's fantastic. And I'm not going to ask any questions about Roger Scruton, so I've been told not to, but thank you. So, James, thanks very much for joining me. So, you're back editing uh, 442. Is that the only magazine you would have come back to edit, or...? Uh, no, I... Well, first I don't see it as a magazine. I see it as coming back working in football more. We've got one and, a half be one and a half million people follow us on social media. Uh, tw 12 million page views. Not 12 million. We have, like, uh, 1.2 million page views this week on the internet. So, it's very much... You know, it doesn't really matter what format the materials come out, but out in. Um, there's a lot of engagement with the audience, and I think the uh, the appeal for me was I have missed working in magazines, mm. but I also love football. So there's probably a few other things I might have done, but that it was an instant. So when I saw it, I thought, oh, I'd like to do that. I wasn't looking for a job or anything. I just wondered what to do when I finished my next book, and I just saw that. But I think you gave a quote saying that there isn't any magazines now that you want to actually buy. Is that, is that right? Uh, there's not many. There's not many that I would want to buy. But I do, you know, I was at City Airport on Tuesday going out to going out to uh, Holland to speak to my licensees there. Okay. I, love the, I love the magazine rack at City Airport. And I could easily have spent two or three hundred quid there should I wanted to buy them. There's a lot of good magazines. So thanks for joining me, Ed. Now, no doubt listeners will be familiar with Snapchat as a popular messaging app, but they might not be as familiar with Snap's physical presence in the UK. So first up, can you just give us an overview of where Snap is in the UK in terms of how many people you employ and the location where we're carrying out this interview today? Hello, John, and a warm hello to all MediaTel listeners. Uh, we are, in fact, in the heart of London, in Soho. Uh, we have a couple of offices uh, for Snap, actually. So we have this office in Lexington Street, um, which is predominantly the advertising business and a bunch of uh, creative folks, marketing science folks, and business marketing. Overall in London though, we have around 160 people actually uh, across this location, also over in Shaftesbury Avenue. And we have teams of computer engineers and uh, some guys actually doing some really exciting work around uh, computer vision. And this is where we are kind of bringing augmented reality into the real world. Uh, I guess the best case we've had of this, the most exciting case we've had of this recently, is when uh, what's called landmark text. This is taking really? physical objects, and you might have seen Big Ben at Christmas, and then, as I mentioned recently, um, Buckingham Palace. Okay. So essentially you can bring real-world buildings to life using your camera. Okay, right, we can go on to, to go talk about that in more detail. So just obviously, uh, in terms of Snapchat, you've got a a high proportion of, of Gen Z uh, using the app. I mean, in terms of the demographic uh, work here, presumably it's skewed towards younger people, is it? Do you know what the average age here is? Uh, interesting. I don't know what the average age is. Maybe I need to confess now, John, that I'm actually 44 and okay. on Snapchat. 
Um, I think if I look across the uh, teams I hear, it feels like everyone's in their kind of mid-twenties, maybe early thirties, but I generally uh, don't know. Okay. And is there, um, obviously it's a US tech company. I mean, I I think there's a perception maybe from the outside that it's quite a singular working environment. Is it a different vibe? And I think you previously worked at Channel 4. Is, is, is there any point of difference? Is there anything unique about working for a US tech company? Do you know what? I've got to say the culture here is the, one of the best working cultures I've ever experienced. The team you know, have this real desire and, and kind of passion around you know, building the Snap business mm-hmm. and also creating great stuff on the platform. Um, we do loads of stuff. So we have some company values, actually, which I think your listeners might be interested in around okay. uh, being kind, being smart and being creative. And they really kind of manifest, them, manifest themselves and kind of permeate all of the organization. Uh, we do a whole bunch of stuff t- uh, around uh, employee and, um, employment relations groups. Yeah. So we have things like Lady Chillers, which is a female empowerment. Okay. So it's, it's a group uh, around empowering females. We have um, we do some stuff for the LGBTQ plus community. Okay. Uh, we even have a Irish community here that do loads of stuff as well. So you know we we've got yeah we've got a great culture actually. Okay, and I think again there is a perception certainly previously that Snap might have been quite a secretive company maybe that comes down from the founder Evan Spiegel but you see you've done a number of interviews recently Mm. are you trying to make the company more public facing or do you think there's a perhaps a misunderstanding of what snap can offer uh, to users and advertisers Um, I'm not sure about that but I do sense though there is a a gap between perception and reality and it's that gap that we're trying to close so for example one of those perception reality things is snap is just used by Generation Z, actually the truth is we've got over 16 million people in Mm. the UK using Snap every day, and 80% of those are actually over 18. Right, okay, so where's where's that perception problem coming from? I think you've given an interview, haven't you, uh, Red With Campaign, and basically berated or had a pop at a lot of people or senior people in (laughs) media agencies and creative agencies, saying that either they didn't understand it or perhaps they should be on it. Yes, I feel really passionately that the media advertising community really need to understand Snap because actually for 16 to 34 year olds, Snap is the most important platform in their lives. Mm. That's where they go back every single day to chat to their best friends, their best mates. That's where they create lenses and play with stuff and that's where they consume content. And I do feel, and I'm, I'm quite strident on this, that actually if you're a brand or marketeer and you're looking to... Uh, build relationships or sell products essentially to 16 to 34 year olds you need to understand snap and, mm. I, and, yeah, I, I, and I guess I was flabbergasted when I first arrived that actually the industry was some way behind that what I'm really pleased to say today though is actually we're starting to see lots of deeper more understanding from the ad and, and marketing community of okay. snap so so just to be clear this is the, what, what your, your initial thought when you went to see these big holding groups who is a WPP publicist or on Omnicom they didn't get it or they didn't understand it or were you flabbergasted? Uh, I think that's probably a bit of a harsh take actually. I uh, I think what we saw were pockets of people and teams and individuals within agencies doing some really good stuff on Snap actually. What I didn't see was a kind of widespread appreciation and understanding and and to be frank I think Snap had to do a better job at at kind of helping the market and the industry understand what Snap is, what we stood for, what we're all about and importantly why, why should they care? 
And I think it's closing that perception of reality that we've really been focused okay. on. So you, you don't think that these people should actually be on the, the platform itself, just as long as they've got a good understanding? That, that's the fact, I would love them to be on Snap. And lots of agency chiefs got in touch with me saying, I'm on Snap, and you knew that, which was very fair, actually. So I, I think the best way to understand Snap is by being on Snap. Okay, and is there, I mean, again, is, is there an issue with media agencies and, or with brands in general that they perhaps see it as a, a toss-up sometimes between Snap and Instagram and they would rather go to Instagram because it's more established, it's bigger, it's open? Is that, is that fair? Um, I think what we're trying to see from advertisers, what we are seeing is them lean much more into us around actually both what we call camera marketing, which hopefully we'll go and talk about that, yeah. using the camera with augmented reality. I mean, some great examples of that work recently. So obviously we have upcoming... Uh, uh, Ladies World Cup, Female World Cup's coming up and we started to kind of talk to advertisers about that and seeing some good work. But it's more around actually what Snap's role in the media plan and we talk about, well actually, if you want to reach 16, 34 year olds, that could be an incremental reach argument, mm. that could be through the creative canvas and actually we're starting to see an understanding of that. And, it, and realistically, what media agencies particularly are looking for multiple uh, media owners to kind of build their media plans. And, we, you know, we've got a real great role to play. OK, so, yeah, I mean, you touched on it there. Can you talk about some of the, perhaps some of the, maybe one or two of the standout campaigns that which you think you've seen in the past, you yeah. know, 12 months? Um, I've got a whole bunch of them, so stop me if I go on too much. Well, two will survive. Two. <laughs> keep, me, keep me to two. All right. So the I'm going to choose different advertisers. So the, I think the first one... Uh, that really stands out to me is a campaign that we ran um, during the first quarter of this year for Mondelez and it's mm. their product um, Oreo cookies which I'm sure you are an avid consumer of uh, <laughs> they, uh, so it's a multi-market campaign across eight markets uh, you might have seen the snap code actually on the packaging itself so right. it's where you pull out your phone you unlock the snap code, you get a bit of additional content. And essentially, John, we would have taken your face right. and placed it on an Oreo cookie. I cannot think of anything more exciting to do that. Um, and so multi-market, obviously we reached our core audience, 16, 34 year olds, which is great. And what we saw back though, which, where, which is why I want to call it out today, was A, it was on pack, but much more excitedly, we actually drove real world results. I, we shifted more products. So we saw uh, a 9% increase okay. in purchase intent. So, you know, seeing an ad on Snap, putting your face on the cookie, and that really changed consumer behavior. Okay, and what, in terms of the different ad formats, what's the most popular ad format on Snap at the moment then? I mean, is it, is it audience filters, is it, is it story ads? So we've got a whole bunch. So we've got lenses and filters, which you're probably okay. familiar with. We have Snap story ads, but what I wanted to touch on actually, if you uh, okay. give me a little bit of time, is a, a recent product that we've launched called Commercials. Right. And if you swipe right on um, Snap, yeah. you go into Discover Content. That's our kind of more public-based content from uh, public figures like Philip Schofield or Jesse Lingard, but also from uh, professional content producers like right. The Telegraph or Vogue or The Economist or Daily Mail. And actually we've got a, a whole new bunch of partners that are creating shows. So shows aren't clips, they actually right. have a beginning, middle and end. And they're kind of like TV but for the mobile generation essentially. So they're fast paced, there's a great narrative arc, there's split screen, and they're, uh, some of the ones things like Endless Summer or the Dead Girls Detective Agency. Okay. And essentially you watch a small piece of content and then you have a full screen six second ad. And we're seeing a large amount of uptake from advertisers that are really keen on that kind of brand safe, reaching 16, 34 year olds, mm. adding some incremental reach maybe to their TV campaigns. So we've had advertisers from like Mars, yeah. um, with Skittles or from P&G. Okay, how long's commercials, how long's that been in the market for now then? 
Oh, just a couple of months. Okay. Um, now, I touched on uh, filters before. Mm. Uh, you do see young girls using Snapchat filters to try and sometimes uh, try and improve their looks, uh, make themselves look, uh, look more beautiful. There was a report I read in The Independent, I think, last year, which said in the US, teenagers, in some cases, are undergoing plastic surgery to look, look like they're doing filtered uh, selfies. I think this was a, a, a cases in the US... Uh, which is obviously quite a disturbing thing to, to read, but that, have there been any cases of this in the, in the UK? And is this a, a concern at all? Um, I'm not familiar with the case okay. you mentioned. Uh, again, I'm not sure from a UK perspective. What I would say about filters, though, is actually what we find is um, so much you put in dog ears or vomiting rainbow lens, it yeah. actually makes people more comfortable to take a selfie because it's kind of disarming, isn't it? It's kind of fun and frivolous. And actually what we find then, that actually young girls or boys or older men, because obviously I've even done dog ears, John, uh, it's actually a fun thing to do. And I think that kind of is disarming and kind of fit, it's quite a leveller in some ways and helps people kind of be their real selves. So one of the key things about Snap is what something I get you know, really excited about is that actually Snap is a place where you communicate with your best friends, your yeah. real self. There's no vanity metrics on Snap, so there's no likes, comments and shares. And by giving that and giving people tools to kind of self-express, I think makes them be their real selves, not their best version of themselves. Okay, and more broadly, I think there is a tendency, particularly from journalists, mm. to bracket Snap with other US tech companies, be it Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Do you think that is the case? And do you think you, a lot of that, that coverage is negative coverage too, isn't it? Do you think you lose out because of that? Or? Do you know what? That is a really good example of the perception reality gap. Because I feel quite strongly that Snap isn't social media. Snap is a communications platform where you chat to your friends and your best mates every day. And if you just pause and reflect for a second, mm. and I'd encourage your listeners to do this actually, that Snap doesn't have many of the characteristics of social media. So as I mentioned, that none of those likes, comments and shares. Mm. So those vanity metrics don't exist. Mm content isn't surfacing, isn't based on a kind of algorithmic virality basis. Mm. Um, you don't have large swathes of friends and followers, you just have a smaller group, which is your best friends. Mm. And it's a closed platform, essentially. Sure. And okay. I think you know, that is very different from a social media environment. So there is a perception problem, because you do, you, you, do you, you do get, when journalists write about it, you are seen as a social media company, aren't you? Largely, I would have thought. Um, do you know what? I think we're doing a good job on tackling that, actually. I think sometimes we can be battered into that, but as I said, we are really um, strongly and quite um, strident and assertive on this, that we're not social media, we are a communications platform. Okay. Uh, I mean, one point of difference, which you haven't touched upon, is that we're here, your UK, your European or international headquarters is in the UK, unlike, say, Facebook, Twitter, which choose to settle in nations with lower tax rates, like <laughs> Luxembourg and yeah. Ireland. So um, presumably your, your UK sales are put, uh, booked in the UK. Um, do you think it's fair? Do you think you're competing on a, a, a level playing field when Facebook is paying 7.4 million in tax in the UK on sales of 1.3 billion? So uh, our head office actually is in uh, Los Angeles in uh, Santa Monica. So yeah. we're a hub office here. As I said, we have advertising solutions and advertising folks and uh, computer engineering folks and computer visualization folks. Um, and, you know, we, we purposely wanted to locate in, in London, in the UK. That's the heart of the advertising community. You know what, I don't think it's probably fair for me to comment on uh, other players and their structures. Right. But you, you, you must have a view, though. You must see it as unfair, don't you, that they're, um, you know, that they're going for low, routing their sales through lower tax regime. That, that would seem to a lot of people unfair, wouldn't it? Or I, 
Do you know what? I think your listeners are probably going to have to make a call on that themselves. And I said it. I have a view. It's a personal view, not a snap view. But I would encourage your listeners to kind of make their own, uh, take their own views on that. All right. Okay. So, I mean, you touched on, you've been in the job how many years now, is it? Uh, uh, not quite a year, actually. Just okay. nine, ten months. Okay. So what, what can we expect in the next 12 months? I mean, you sort of touched upon some of the, uh, some of the technology you're sort of digging into at the moment. Yep. So I think, uh, you know what? I'm probably more excited now looking ahead than I was when I first arrived because we've we've kind of only just got started. Um, so there's a whole bunch of things we're going to focus on. So obviously we're going to continue to build a, a sustainable um, advertising sales business, essentially, yeah. uh, made of big brand advertisers like Nike or P&G or Unilever. Sure. Also working with more maybe kind uh, of performance-based advertisers, essentially, yeah. maybe some of uh, like King.com, another games company. So building a sustainable long-term advertising business continue on the augmented reality. So I do feel that Snap has a real competitive advantage in just the quality of our augmented realities. That's, that's the, the lenses and filters that you were speaking about earlier. Sure. And we, had a, we announced a whole bunch of things recently at a partner conference um, around the camera. So right now, if you open your camera, you can uh, hover over, um, if in the US, hover over a product and purchase okay. it from Amazon. You can kind of make everyday objects come to life. We talked about the landmark tech. I'm really excited that we're going to probably, we're very close to having our first uh, campaigns in the UK using landmark tech. When's that going to happen then? Is that this year or? Uh, I would say in the next few months, actually. Okay. Um, you know, that feels me excited. So we've got kind of innovation, so sustainable ad business, innovation with the camera, and also continue to um, build and grow our community. Okay. And one of the key things we've, we've recently focused on is uh, rebuilding the Android app from the yes. ground up. Okay. And we're going to see, uh, and we're starting to see the signs of success of that with um, attracting new uh, members of the community. Okay, so, and so we haven't really actually touched upon uh, user numbers. There was an, mm. an eMarketeer report, wasn't there, which said that user numbers were beginning to decline in 2019. But I think you might dispute those figures. I was really shocked by that, actually, uh, because it doesn't match anything that our data is saying. So I'm not sure how they calculated that. But what I can say is our, as we released in our uh, Q1's earning call recently, our community is growing. Mm. Uh, we have 16 million people every day in the UK. And even to go even further, we have over 75% of all 16, 24-year-olds in the UK, in the US, and in France, okay. and Australia. Right, okay, okay. So, yeah, it, it's just one that really doesn't resonate with me. All right, okay, that's fine. And just um, last couple of things. I think mm. you, you kind of touched, up, uh, touched upon this. So if you're a, a, a brand that hasn't got a target market, well, a target market outside millennials and, and, and Gen Z, mm. why, why, should they, why should they use Snapchat then? So actually one of our fastest growing uh, kind of demographics are the over 30s. Um, mm -hmm. But you know we do absolutely uh, work with advertisers, large and small, covering large and all kind of demographics. So let me think of a, uh, a really good example actually is uh, Just Eat, the food yeah. delivery company. Yeah. So one of their pivotal times is across basically uh, payday weekend. They have okay. a large amount of orders. It's a crucial time for them. And obviously their uh, target market is basically everyone who orders uh, food. And so what they tend to do then is, is run um, a lens in the kind of run up to the weekend to kind of raise awareness about Just Eat and then back that up with a full suite of our ad products during payday weekend to kind of drive to actual purchase. And we've seen that have really good results for them. Okay. 
And finally, one thing I didn't... You touched upon brand safety, saying mm. it is a safe environment. I think you have, you have done some work alongside the Samaritans and other tech companies to tackle content that promotes... Um, to tackle content that promotes suicide and self-harm. Mm. Is that... Um, I mean, it's difficult, isn't it, with Snaps? It's kind of... It disappears and it's ephemeral, isn't it? But, I mean, is there, a, is there an issue about brand safety there? Um, so, look... You know, one of the really important things for us is to ensure that we keep our community safe. Mm. You know, we think that Snap is a happy place and it's a safe place. When we ask our community that, the majority of them, so over 80% of them, say it's a safe, happy place compared to all the other platforms. And so that's really crucial to Snap. Um, we obviously do work, we have trust and safety teams uh, that kind of identify content and we do take that down when it's inappropriate. Um, from an advertiser perspective though, okay. what we hear back from them is actually it is a brand safe environment because it's a closed platform. Sure, okay. Uh, Okay. Uh, and finally, just with your Facebook hat on too, I listened to um, Mark Zuckerberg's podcast, which are very good. Uh, he's talked about there's a, or he sees there's a, a shift away from public posting and towards encrypted private messaging, mm. which I guess would kind of benefit Snapchat. Is that how you see things? Um, so I guess with my Snap hat on, yes, I see it here firsthand. I mean, Snap was the home, the inventor, the birthplace of ephemeral messaging because actually, if you take your mind back, so Snap is only just coming up to eight years old. Yeah. It was born out of the era of social media. And Evan, you mentioned our founder, kind of felt actually, you know, it's a reaction against that. It's a reaction against this kind of more public-based, having um, a place to communicate with your best friends is at the heart of that. And just like everyday conversations, like you and I are talking now, we're not, there's not a um, we're not going to remember every aspect of this okay. and that disappearing thing almost mirrors our normal human interactions right Ed that is fantastic